Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm your host, Scott Livingston, and this is where I explore the influences that have shaped the lives of our incredible guests. These are the stories of lives worth talking about. Follow me on Twitter, Built by Scott, and Instagram at King O'Kane, or link up with me on my Facebook fan page, Scott G. Livingston. My goal is to empower and inspire a community of people who take every opportunity to live a high-performing life. Before I get started on today's podcast, I want to take a moment to connect you with my sponsor, ReconditioningHQ.com. Seven years ago, Jamie and I set out to answer a question. Can you integrate the worlds of therapy and performance so that they work together for the benefit of the client? We knew that if we could create something truly tangible that was inclusive instead of exclusive, it would allow you, the practitioner, to solve more problems, work with purpose instead of a cross-purpose, and in the end, you would earn more income by working smarter, not harder being fulfilled, and sought after for your solutions. After creating reconditioning and witnessing the change of so many professionals' lives and practices, we knew still there was one more ingredient we needed to make it a bulletproof process. For so many years, the brain and central nervous system were not clearly understood. There were a lot of theories and interesting practices, but the research just wasn't there to support the claims. But in the last 10 to 15 years, the world of neurology has come out of the laboratory into the world of real application. We knew this was the missing piece of our process, bringing the current practices of applied neurology into the empowering practice of reconditioning. Introducing Neuro Reconditioning, the R-Pro series, four steps, one mission, to make you the neuro reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. If you haven't started yet, it all starts out with our signature course, R1 Foundations. R1 is about learning the building blocks of assessing and improving functional movement through the lens of applied neurology. Maybe you've taken the first step, but that's a bit like being a freshman in a college. You've only just begun. R2 Designs empowers the process even further so you can assess and improve any human movement, understand the visual and vestibular system, and then integrate your work into performance programming and return to performance. Both of these courses are completely online experiences, so you can digest everything from the comfort of your home, hotel, plane, or office. But knowing that there is so much value in trying, doing, and living the experience with us by your side, our new R3 Collab is about you experiencing the full power of the process in a living lab. Troubleshooting your issues, fixing your problems in real time, and gaining real confidence in the process, as well as learning how the brain integrates and manages everything we do. Finally, our R4 mentorship is about exposing your knowledge, refining your approach, and learning through a powerful feedback process so you can be a reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. For more information on all our course offerings, including our landmark personal development program, Empower You, please check out reconditioninghq.com today and use the coupon code LYM50 for $50 off any one of our course offering. If maximum strength, injury prevention, and performance enhancement are important to you, Isofit's all-new Maximum Strength Kit is an absolute must add addition to your arsenal. Requiring less than seven square feet of space, Isofit's cost-saving design provides over 2,000 pounds of resistance for millions of isometric-based strength exercise. Made from cold-rolled Canadian steel, Isofit's Maximum Strength Kit is the world's first performance product dedicated to maximizing isometric strength, peak isometric force, and maximum isometric endurance strength. Since 2015, Isofit strength products have proudly strengthened and stabilized athletes in the NFL, NBA, NLB, NHL, and UFC. Pre-sale pricing is on now. 
Order yours today at www.isofitmsk.ca. That's isofit with a PH. Remember to use the discount code Leave Your Mark to save 15% on your purchase. Shipping February 2022. Matrix Fitness has been the longest standing sponsor of the Leave Your Mark podcast. Greg Lawler, the Vice President of Business Development, reached out to me over a year and a half ago to say that he felt we had a common vision for human performance, something bigger than just helping people physically perform better. Their mission aligns with my mission, the idea that by creating the fertile soil for everyone and anyone to start or continue their personal performance journey, we will be here to help you do it. Matrix is one of the biggest brands in fitness and performance equipment today, but they are more than that. They are about helping you reach higher, explore your possibilities, and stay in the game, whatever your chosen path. Whatever you need, whether that is to buy equipment, rent equipment, or seek consultation, or simply recognize the possibilities, Greg and his team at Matrix are here to help you. You can find them at teamupwithmatrix.com today. Everyone struggles with the challenges of life on a daily basis. You're not alone. But if you're like most people, you feel alone, even when you're in a great relationship or a good work environment, because it's so hard to honestly reflect on your insecurities and obstacles with the people that you love or serve. After all, everyone wants to present themselves as being on it, prepared, ready to meet the challenges of life head on. But you know that's not how you always feel inside. Do you sometimes feel as though just having someone to bounce your ideas off of would be something you needed? Maybe you wish you just had someone who would listen to you so you could vent without the fear of judgment. The LYM Life Lab is about real mentorship. It's about me listening to you, connecting, empathizing, realizing, and reflecting so you can make better decisions, create your own change, and live a life of fulfillment and joy. It's not about living the perfect life. It's about living a better life. One you design, craft, explore, and experience within a safe place of objective perspective and honesty but no judgment. In the coming weeks, I will be opening this program up to an exclusive group of people, people who want to see real change in their lives and are willing to work towards real growth. This isn't a program for everyone, but if you're up for the challenge, you'll want to pay close attention to how to be included in this powerful experience. Stay tuned in the coming weeks for how you can be an instigator of your own change. Hello and welcome to Leave Your Mark. I'm Scott Livingston, your host, and today I have the honor of having a good friend of mine, uh, Jeremy Shepard, back. Uh, he was um, honored me with his presence in the early stages of Leave Your Mark. I think he might have been my eighth or tenth interview back in the day, and uh, now we're edging towards 250, so it's about time I have him back. Welcome, Jer Shepard. So cool to be back and to set up, kind of be so far bookending um things with this initiative yeah it's it's fun and we were just uh, catching up on how uh, life is going for uh, for us and both of us uh today seem to have some tail dragging <laughs> to do a little bit but uh you know it is part of life and the some of the things that get get us up and get us down we both have worked in performance sport for a long time and i said you know jerry asked me what do you want to talk about today and i sort of said well I'd love to get into, you know, what we sort of view as leadership, not sort of the how do you lead kind of conversation, but what do, what have we experienced as leaders and, 
in leadership and watching leadership that's kind of made us think a little bit and made us ponder and wonder how it could be done better or where it's where its flaws are and then just kind of extrapolate from there and see where it goes so i guess my first I don't, I don't want this to be just a Q&A. I want it to be a conversation. And certainly if you've got questions for me, Jer, hit me hard with them. But um, for me, it's like you've, you've watched and participated in for a long time, you know, all of these different, call it um, environments of whether it's performance or life or what have you. And you've probably run into people who you felt were true leaders. And then you've run into people who found themselves in a place of leadership, but maybe didn't have that capacity and you've been in it yourself and been expected to lead. So what have been some of your call takeaways from that in terms of what's good, what's bad, what's not, what's up, what's down kind of thing. Yeah. So, you know, for me, when, um, when I started to really understand that, like what I was trying to do was, um, work with, work with people, um, and trying to, you're, you're kind of trying to do something exceptional, right? So that's kind of what you, I think what I found is, was really important to start with is, you know, because when we first think about leadership, when we're really young, we're really naive and we've never really done it. We've maybe been briefly, I don't know, uh, the last man standing or, or, or briefly in charge of getting something done. And maybe that involved other people and the signals maybe that we had about leadership through books or movies or whatever. Um, the focus initially is like, you're telling people what to do. Like that's, that's your, you're, you're just simply organizing people. And then over time, I think what you realize is that is um, rarely what you're doing. And it's often on the opposite end where when you are uh, in a situation, if you find yourself as a leader and you are truly giving people life-saving information or, or actually like, you know, telling them what to do, usually it, sh- it should be an extraordinary experience. Like safety is at risk or, or something like that. It is not generally a good sign. <laughs> so when you see, like when you're young and naive and you think leadership is about telling people what to do, I think it's, it's really funny that you realize that when you're telling people what to do, something, something bad happened. <laughs> Either you screwed up earlier and that's why you have to tell somebody what to do, you know, so that directive leadership that we identify through, you know, sort of uh, extraordinary scenes in movies where people are getting hollered at or, or, or something great is happening in the scene of the movie, but there's a lot of like overt leadership. That's like, that's not really what it's all about. It's, it's about the stuff that avoids that situation usually avoids that um, direct display of, of directorship. Mm. Yeah. Well, when I, when I, you sent me the text and I reached out, I said, you know, there were kind of three words that came to my mind, leadership, stewardship, and mentorship. And I kind of feel like those three, they're kind of points in a prism of what that kind of, when you find yourself in a place where you're, to me, creating culture, to me, creating um, a sense of 
where an organization group of people uh or even your family are going um that's what it kind of means like it's not one thing or the other it's a combination of these things and to your point there's times where you know yeah you've got to grab the steering wheel and you know actually direct the bus but there's other times where if you've done things right and set the table from a mentorship perspective and a stewardship perspective, other people are driving the bus and you are, you are changing your focal point to something else in the bus or around you and talking to people and you're not focused on where the bus is going. Mm-hmm. Does that resonate with you or you see a different viewpoint on that? Well, I, I think that if we dive into that a little bit, a little bit more, when you, when you're talking about, um, talking about mentorship and stewardship in the context of leadership, I really like what that helps us think about when we think about these sort of shifts in what you're doing as part of it and the leadership journey itself. Because, you know, going back to the naive example, you think leadership is just directorship, um, like, like I think all of us probably originally do. And then you realize that it's, that it's not, that you're, you're not trying to um, to seek power over, right? You're trying to empower. And at first you think it's power over and you think it's authority and you think, okay, I have a bit of leadership, but I'm ultimately going for all the leadership, right? So it's this naive thing where you think there's just like, I'm acquiring like, like status instead of influence or, you know, whatever. And so when you bring in the differentiating, like, is this overarching leadership or is this particularly stewardship or is it mentorship? These are forms of leadership that gets everyone leading, right? So when I think about that, I think about like, say like a hive where, yeah, there, there might be, you know, there might be certain roles. There might be a queen bee, if there's a hive, but there's, there's also other things going on in there. There's also this complex um, team that's, that's happening. And then within that, there's these shifts that can be um, the, you know, stewardship aspects as well as mentorship aspects all within it so that we don't just have this single uh, top-down approach to leadership where it's like there's a person that acquires status and there's a people that do not get that status. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's not as simple as that. Um, there's there's growth throughout that that whole thing, and then even a young, like a young person, that's how they probably should really get their start as a leader is learn to be a mentee, learn to be a follower, and be like the best mentee and follower that you can, because from that you will learn to become a mentee. You'll be a mentee. You'll have micro mentee moments and then your responsibility grows and then your accountability can grow. And that's just what leadership really is operationally. It's if you are a leader, you have more accountability in that team. That's to me, that's all Mm -hmm. it is. Yeah. Well, I think when I've seen, when I've seen it done well, um, call it what you may, I feel that good leaders have a tangible understanding of what everybody they're leading actually does. Uh, They may not be um, 
you know, the best ship in the house to say program something or design something or whatever, but they have an affinity or connection to it such that they can um, empathize with that professional or that person and, you know, have a sense of what it is that they're going through and recognize that in the overreaching process that they're creating, they have to have a connection between that. They're not to your point up here, they're everywhere Mm -hmm. and they're kind of, conscious of what's going on or they create conscious mechanisms for understanding those things yeah when you've been in a good situation scotty like one where you're like you you're thinking like this wasn't just good it was like it was uniquely good as a team what were i mean i got three questions about that but i'll keep it Mm -hmm. simple what what did it feel like what did that feel like yeah it for me it felt like um one I could do my job uh, and not have to uh, lean into the so-called leader for permission to do my job or the work I was doing. I felt um, supported by that person to do my work. I also had a sense that they had my back. Um, If, you know, if I had done things in the way that we had culturally talked about doing things, then I... I knew that if I, you know, something went awry, they would be there for me. Um, And I always had a sense that um, I could talk, um, call it strongly with um, an essence of, you know, this will be valued, but we need to sort of have a strong conversation. I always felt like I could have that conversation and not fear um, in essence, retribution or some sense of that I was going to get, you know, whacked for it, so to speak. Uh, I, I ha- had a sense that I could contribute. And even if the words were strong, you know, I, we would we would come to a place where we could find a solution set for what we were doing. And, you know, I, to be honest with you, I haven't been in that many scenarios where where I really felt that level of leadership, but I have had it in my life. And that's what it felt like. Yeah. Well, I mean, the things that I'm pulling out of of what you said on what it feels like is you had a lot of agency. Um, There was uh, resources and and, um, capability provided, but you were also treated as capable. Um, Communication was open, honest, transparent, and there's a lot of trust and respect. Mm -hmm. All of these words that I say, that's what everybody wants all the time. Like no one, no one sits in a seminar and says, "Yeah, like I want everyone to feel like they don't have any independence or interdependence. I don't want them to know what each other's doing. Um, let's make it a confusing communication structure that is filled with word traps and uh, a complete lack of transparency. Like no one says that. Everyone says these words, but you describe them in, in other words. So I think it's important sometimes to then ask like, what is it that you did that was different? Like success leaves clues. So like, was it just an accidental alignment of everyone's personality or was there something going on there? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think um, what's interesting about it is one of the things, you know, in going through the, my personal mindset journey that I've gone through the last six, seven years of my life. Uh, and we've talked about this before, but one of the outcomes of that is my recognition of my own ownership of everything that I 
experience. And I think when I was younger, I had this sense that, you know, things were sometimes imposed upon me or uh, the somebody else was driving my bus and I couldn't really change that too much. And, you know, there are circumstances where that is the truthful reality. Um, but as we venture forward in the work that we do, we have to recognize that our the way we bring ourselves to the space and our sense of confidence in what we do and our sense and trust, trust in ourselves. I had a great conversation with um, Michael Gervais a while ago. And I asked Michael, who's a very well-known uh, performance psychologist, uh, sports psychologist. I said to him, you know, when you're talking about trust, when you look at trust, you look at it from the perspective of I, I have to acquire trust in somebody or I give trust until they show me that they're not trustworthy. And he said, the first question I have to ask myself is, do I trust myself? And I think that that was profound because at the end of the day, when you're going to have, when you're going to be a leader and when you're going to be led, can you trust yourself? If you don't, in some essence, then it changes very, very, it's almost like the butterfly effect. You know, you have this modification of your self-trust changes the way the person leading you then trusts you. And then all of a sudden, all the mechanisms start to be perceived as different. Sometimes it's not about whether somebody set the soil right. It's whether you actually are trying to, you know, grow your weeds in that soil or not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really interesting one. For Michael to say, too, because I think for some people, their initial gut reaction to that language is, of course, I can be trusted. (laughs) Like almost like this reactive defensiveness that we probably all have because we're all trying to live a principled life. So when you start to ask yourself a confronting question of can you be trusted, we will often look at it in a very, uh, very simple way. But if you ask that question and accept the full depth of what that language means, you're, you're asking yourself, for example, let's say you're provided with an opportunity. Let's say it's a traditional role, and so it comes in the form of a promotion. And with that promotion comes more responsibility, but even more concerning is more accountability, a lot more accountability than you've ever had before. And that accountability will mean that you will... Um, you will know things and some, some things you won't be able to change. So here's a question maybe you didn't, an, didn't really anticipate, but like what you're asking yourself is, can you be trusted to do the greater good for this larger group of people, even though there will be individuals that you cannot help mm-hmm. and you would like to help them and you personally feel like you should be able to help them? Mm-hmm. Well, that's the role that you're accepting, right? So asking yourself, can you be trusted doesn't necessarily mean that if you say no, it's because you are bad. It could be that like you are actually not adequately prepared for some of the challenges because you're not even aware, you know, and, and sometimes roles and sets of accountabilities can actually be quite challenging for these reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that there, you know, it's interesting the angle you took on that because you took the angle of, can you be trusted? And and in essence, the question is also, can you trust yourself? And that's the essence of your viewpoint of what, you know, your definition of success. We've talked about this before when your values match your behavior. So in that is a definition of integrity at the end of the day, Mm -hmm. do so in order to trust yourself, you have to 
effectively recognize what are your values and are your behaviors an, an extension of that? If they're not, then by by extension, you're not able to trust yourself because you're not going to behave the way you say you would like to behave, mm-hmm. which ventures you to be untrustworthy of yourself in some sense. Mm-hmm. So we have to have that wrestling match with ourselves. You know, if this is what I've set my values at, first of all, do they match the values of the organization, the leader, the people that I'm working with? If I'm a leadership perspective position, do I have values that are connected to the values of the organization or not? Because that's where things become, um, in essence, the dissonance begins is you've taken a role as the leader of an organization, but your values don't match the value, so-called values of the organization in essence. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that incongruence is for, like I observe for some people, they're very good at living with micro or even moderate incongruences. You know, like I have friends who are like, Oh no, that's okay because you like they're like, oh, this isn't great about this situation, this thing that I'm a member of, you know, and it could be work, might not be work. But they're like, well, these are the benefits or these are the good things, and this is what I get out of it. And they're really quite happy with with this incongruent. And I I'm I wish I I wish I had that. Um, mm. sometimes especially, because sometimes it can be tormenting. If you're not able to do that, which I'm very challenged by that, if something isn't congruent, I like I I would have trouble <clears throat> taking friends to a restaurant if I didn't like like honestly one employee there. Hmm. Like I have trouble walking past like if I knew something really negative, I'd be like you know the the, the person doing this or whatever. Like I can't. To me, it changes. I can't be at that restaurant. Like, I mean, I'm not dysfunctional. I can have a meal, but like, it would it would be a real challenge for me to fully, you know, if you guys came to town and I wanted to take you up for dinner, and right before we're going to dinner, I found out something about that place or the people that own it. If I had like, I would have trouble with that that lack of alignment. And so too when if I'm, you know, trying to create sort of a, an environment that results in a certain, uh, a certain set of um, uh, ways of doing things uh, with values reflected in our behaviors, if they're not happening, I'm, uh, and I'm out of alignment with it, it's, um, it's like a radar that's mm-hmm. very sensitive and it just goes off. And um, I don't think it's always helpful. Yeah, well, that's interesting because it kind of strikes me as a, a conversation piece around um, kind of structure and function in some sense. And I think there's, you know, we we come up with these policies, procedures, rules, regs, all that kind of of an organization. And then it's kind of, well, do people follow them or, follow them or not? And I've always been kind of curious over my career where you see people who are quite successful at running the edges or over the sides of the edges of those rules, but they still have great success personally, professionally, or organizationally. And then you see um, other situations where that goes sideways. But you also see where things have become so indoctrinated that they, that they're, that's also not uh, 
it doesn't give the liberation of people's opportunity to kind of flow. It goes back to that idea of structure and flow. Like how do we find the perfect marriage of those two things? Because flow to some degree leans towards not having too much, too many belts and braces, structure, you know, belts and braces. So how, how have you, you know, navigated that with your own sense of how you want to see things done or you, you'd like people to behave in some sense? Well, I'll start with my biggest challenge. My biggest challenge with trying to turn, because um, essentially how I would look at it is you're always trying to transition group behavior into team behavior. So you're trying to transition a collection of people into a team of people. If we're talking about leading others before that, I would say, you know, let's not forget that you have to lead yourself as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, especially myself early in the career, I started to be given opportunities to lead others and focused on that before I realized there was so much to be done in leading self, you know, which is really critical. But if we are talking about a group of people and you're trying to, you know, create a team, I think you really need to start with understanding exactly what your structure is, your accountability and responsibility structure. And so you don't necessarily have to be a theorist in leadership structure at all, but you, you kind of have to decide on a few principles, like, like, what are you, like, what are you going to be? Um, And what are you doing? Like, what does success look like? So if you want to be extraordinary, I assume you're trying to be extraordinary amongst fellow extraordinary teams as well. So if you're trying to win a skiing medal or you're trying to, um, you know, um, get, a, get a healthy startup company going, either way, how are, what is success for you and how you define it? And then, you know, what does that compare to your competitors? So what are you doing? What are you doing better? What are you doing differently? What do you stand for? Right, you got to stand for something, and so for me, what I've found is that um, top-down hierarchies are the kind of things that uh, that don't really work for me. They're not going to get the team or the group to become the kind of team that I would be proud of being a part of. Um, they can work in certain situations, but I greatly prefer very much like a decentralized decision-making model where. What you're trying to do is like, if you can just imagine that like every day, every person is increasing their ownership Mm. of their area so that you can, if you decentralize that hierarchy, it doesn't mean anarchy. (laughs) This is something that's really important, but like people think there's no boss and it's like, no, why does it have to be binary where you see it as this overlord versus anarchy? Like, well, I don't, I don't understand why it would have to be like that. And the, to me, the, the, the agile environment is one where everyone is familiar with each other's responsibilities. And then there's a hierarchy of accountability. So, Scotty, let's say we were in a team together and you were in charge of sports medicine. You were accountable for sports medicine. So for any reason, if you wanted to go to the ultimate person that was accountable for this entire initiative, for this professional, uh, let's say, NFL team that we both work work for, you're accountable for sports medicine. But of course, that doesn't mean you are the surgeon for wrists and shoulders. 
you're still you with your skill sets, but you're accountable for that. And then when I know that, I can be respectful, right? When I need to go work with you on something because I need to understand that you are, I'm accountable for this set of things. And maybe I have help with certain responsibilities within the team, but you're accountable for this whole area of sports medicine. And so that might mean that if we have a wrist surgeon, you are the person that finds that, that woman or that man to be our wrist surgeon, right? Or our shoulder surgeon or, you know, whatever it is. And so if you have a team where the under, you understand each other's accountabilities, then instead of having a hierarchy where you have a sense of privilege and position for very few and all decisions need to be moved up the chain towards this slow, unagile process where people will make the decisions further from the problem, right? Instead of that, you have people with agency in the ground who are responsible for certain things. And each and every day, they take it like a learning environment to be more responsible and more knowledgeable of, of that area. They take more ownership of it. They make those decisions and they, they learn from those things. And then what you become is an information team. And so what, what you're transferring around your team, your hive or whatever you want to call it, what you're transferring around your team is information. It's data on how everyone can do their job better. Because instead of uh, someone at the coal face stopping their job and saying, I got to wait and talk to Scotty and get all his permission before I spend $7 on tape, before I call the surgeon, before I do this, they already know. I need to order this. I need to call this person. I need to do this. And then what happens is you are told that this is the way it happened. And because you hired this person in the first place, you have trust. You've given them agency and you've helped them learn responsibility. And so today, as, the, as you find out that these are the actions they took based on this problem, you were then given this wide open mentorship piece to then teach them whether they could learn more from what they did today. Because if we accept that we learn by doing, we have to get out of the way and let people do stuff. Mm-hmm. And don't hire stupid people, <laughs> right? So, like, don't don't like hire capable people with with good uh, with good character. And then what mm-hmm. will happen is you give them responsibility, and they don't press the red button and blow up the world. Mm-hmm. No, no big deal. Like they they do their thing. They do it to their best. They you've shown them where the landmines are you've given them the opportunities and they've done their best of their ability and it's at 95 percent. and so now there's five percent to work on and then pretty soon what happens is the everyone is so empowered that the people that are responsible for things very quickly are doing a far superior job in the eyes of the mentee as well hmm. they ever would have thought possible if you waited for a single point of contact or a line manager or some other, frankly, archaic um, leadership style that, that doesn't empower individuals. So I, I think to, for me, Scotty, that's a critical thing is what what is it you're trying to do? Like, how, right. how is it that you're trying to be a team? Yeah, well, it's, it's interesting hearing what you said there, because one of the best uh, quotes I ever had from a friend of mine who was working in a uh, corporation was her she said to her her boss said to him you know 
as you just make sure I know why you're doing what you're doing and not, so I can have your back, but you do what you got to do. And, and it's kind of that sense that you, you know, you're free to work, but you, you need to inform, you can't leave your so-called boss or the person who is responsible for your work a high and dry when something happens. And when you make a mistake, you have to take responsibility for yeah. it. And, uh, that's, that's a huge piece. You, you asked me the question, when have you seen, you know, it done well and what, what did it feel like? Mm. So for me, the, the feeling often is, is like a sense of almost like you have a superpower for, for problems, big and small, obviously no one's, um, immune to, uh, to major mishaps and disasters and stuff like that. Like things, things can go wrong and, uh, you obviously don't feel invincible to those, but the kind of stuff that would normally drag you down just tends to be something where you just, you feel capable, you know? And I, I often say like, whenever, you know, you're like, Oh man, I got four problems on the board over here and two problems on the board over here. And I got something on my to-do list here. And it's like, I remind myself that expression. Um, you know, what would we do if we ran out of problems to solve every day? Like that's what we're kind of supposed to do. So when you're in these, these teams that really feel like teams, I feel personally like just all the stuff that that is within the reasonable extremes of ups and downs are, are just, they're just shrunk to now this kind of like normal oscillation. They're not really problematic because people don't react. Mm. They act capably. Right. They respond. Mm. It's not pushing them into that ultra high or ultra low. And so we don't get these swings and, um, I, I guess the other thing too, Scotty, is you really notice the like the emotional connection with other people in the team. It's not just I trust you in the cubicle beside me type thing. It's not like that. It's like another level of interdependence that's really quite hard to describe. But I I definitely see in those environments, it is really, 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 really easy to forget who, like, if you don't know who's got like the most accountability, who's the boss on paper or whatever, like you would almost never know. Hmm. Um, Especially if you were blinded to the ages, background and experiences of the people, I think you wouldn't guess it based on some of the conversations. Um, you can sometimes in these teams really reveal some young folks that are really coming into their own, perhaps because of who they are, but perhaps because of the way they've been nurtured. And mm. so you wouldn't guess it that they're not the a, a major leader in the organization because they're speaking in a manner that is considered and wise. Um, you know, perhaps because they've been nurtured, or perhaps they're just awesome young talent. But mm. those are the kind of things that seem to come out. I found in sport, because we both have a sport you know, background, but a lot of these things can transcend into different um, environments. But in sport particularly, there's this kind of strange um, dichotomy between 
the the need to win and be successful immediately and the need to create something tangible over time and the the first one tends to sort of overreach the second one a lot and what where i found it is in an organization organizational cultural belief system about what is building success and usually what happens is you hire a gm or you hire a head coach or you hire a you know, whomever in this so-called leadership position. And then they come in with their strategy and their approach and it either works or doesn't work, but it it may fracture a whole bunch of things in a two, three, four year cycle. And then you, you have a do over, whether it's pro sport or so-called amateur sport. And instead of saying, you know what, to your point earlier, but hiring the right people or good people, instead of saying, this is what, our organizational cultural belief system is, and we hire based on the person adapting into that. What we usually do is we hire them and then they're the hired gun to deliver it. And then everything gets schmozzled around. I'm just kind of interested on your viewpoint because I feel like that's the detriment of a lot of unsuccessful organizations or ones that go up and down and up and down is that they don't commit to a a, a true cultural belief system over time. And when you do actually look at some of the sports organizations throughout the world that have had consistent success over time, like a man, Manchester, like a, like a, you know, New Zealand's rugby squad, uh, like an, like an NFL team, like the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Patriots, uh, you know, you look at those teams and they tend to have a very, clear definition of what their culture is and the higher into it rather than allow the people that are in to define it. What do you think yeah. of that? Quick break here and we'll be back in a couple of seconds with our podcast guest. The reconditioning process is powerful. It's provocative and it has become a sought after capacity in the human performance world. ReconditioningHQ.com has released the R-Pro series, a four-step turnkey process to integrating the worlds of therapy and performance. Four steps, one mission to make you the reconditioning professional everyone wants to work with. The first step is R1 Foundations, and it's recently been turbocharged with the injection of applied neurology. We are extremely excited about what this new capacity is going to do to your ability to solve problems and serve your client. For more information about the R Pro series or any one of our empowering courses, head over to reconditioninghq.com and take advantage of our free five hours video that takes you through our groundbreaking method of improving mobility. Do you let $100,000 walk out of your rehab business every year? If you're like most businesses, you do. Operating your business under a fix or release model drives your client revenue out the door. For less than $10 per day, Isofit's line of strength products can change your revolving door of lost revenue into a flourishing rehab prevention and performance training business. Call them at one 866 2 isofit I-S-O-P-H-I-T, and strengthen your rehab business bottom line today. Matrix Fitness is a global brand of fitness and performance equipment with over 7,000 employees worldwide. Their expertise and capacity in this world are exceptional, with over 500 products that cater to the medical, fitness, and athletic performance markets. But they want to do more than provide product. They want to help you thrive as a performance professional or business person. They are here to help. 
Whatever your problem might be, they are ready and willing to help you find solutions. Greg Lawler and his team at Matrix can be contacted at teamupwithmatrix.com. And believe me when I say this, they will make a difference in your success. We're back. Enjoy the rest of this podcast. Yeah, I think I think it's it's awesome. Sport definitely provides the very observable examples that you've provided there. And I'm sure there are many more in other segments, but for me, I get stuck with sport because there's just so many good examples. Like you're gonna you're gonna mention the all blacks when you mention, you know, what you've um what you've described there and 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 definitely um there's, I think there's examples in the business world. Um, and I sort of think of maybe enthusiastic leaders with big ideas that are, uh, you know, they get reputations like they're, um, you know, they're, they're change agents or, you know, some other sort of, um, nomenclature to describe them. But like, I find it really interesting. There's, there may be sort of like leaders in sport too, where they're kind of like, created a name for themselves by turning something around that was maybe mm. not a disaster, but maybe not going well. So maybe a season or like maybe a team that has had three seasons in a row where it hasn't been a winning season, but they're the kind of payroll and kind of marketplace where it's like, no, this team is a winning team. This is a playoff team. This is not a plus 500 team. This is a, you're going into, you know, May or June or whatever, um, depending on the league you're in. And it's similar in the business world. They'll come in and they'll, they'll make a lot of changes. But I think where we're talking about here is teams that never really need to be turned around because it never gets to the point where they're saying, look, man or woman, just we're screwed. The mark that the, you know, the, 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 our profit share has gone down or, you know, our winning rate has gone down or our, our, just our athlete culture, you know, we got, got people in jail, whatever it is, you know, at, at your team, your cultural, uh, your cultural canaries in the, in the coal mine there. But those other teams, I think they know what their priorities are and they know them, whether they're winning or losing. Mm. Right. And they know, they know to, they know to differentiate what their purpose is with what the hell's going on on the field or what's going on in the New York stock exchange. And they can look into the data and say, yes, anybody in the world can look up our woeful stock today. However, there's only a certain amount of people that can walk the halls of this business and really diagnose the problem. So let's be careful if we're just going to import someone whose advanced knowledge of this situation is not in these hallways and is not part of this culture. This is an external person who's just also looking at our terrible stock this morning on, on the New York Stock Exchange. So now you're bringing in someone who's maybe going to make a whole bunch of changes, but they don't know where the landmines are. And they don't know necessarily the organization that you need to be, not in two years, because they're just trying to get you from crappy, right? Get out of crappy, right? So get out of, you know, winning less game or losing more games than you win or whatever it is. And so they don't understand what those key principles are. Like, this is what we stand for. And this is what we will stand for when you are gone. Mm. Like, and not every business can do that. Not every team can do that. Like um, not every team has a storied history that they can call upon, but uh, that didn't stop NHL expansion teams from doing well, really well, (laughs) you know, Mm. like it's, 
you don't have to be Notre Dame fighting Irish and the New Zealand All Blacks to, you know, or England, you know, cricket or something to have these, this sort of uh, belonging. But it sure as heck helps. Hmm. But somebody started around belonging with the New Zealand All Blacks, and now everyone is a custodian of that. So it has to start somewhere. So getting clear with what your your the main like not just what you're going to do because that may change over time, how you're going to do it, the way in which you do it, that becomes a part of your culture. And if you focus on that, if you po- focus on those behaviors, then the results that are the KPIs for you, they will happen as a natural consequence of the process, but you got to focus on the process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And well, that kind of leads into another thematic that I'm curious about with you is most people would say, if I get to do a a startup concept versus a do-over, it's kind of easier to do the startup in some ways if you have the right um, material support around what you're trying to achieve. So you can hire the people that you want to hire and craft. But most people come into a situation when they're asked to lead a group of, and especially in a, whether the organization is losing or in the red or what have you, they're often having to fix the culture. So from a cultural fix perspective, what's, what's your viewpoint on, you know, those first, you know, like, like they say about the presidents, the first hundred days, what do you take stock of to, to recognize where maybe the, the holes in the dike are so that you, you start turning the taps. Cause I think the mistake some people make sometimes is to just clear the deck and start mm. over. They don't recognize, you know, where they can make moderate change. So just your, your thoughts on that. I'd love, mm. love to hear. That's a, that's a really good question. Um, so the, the first thing I do in a situation like that or anything that I've faced similarly, um, bearing in mind, I'll, I'll answer that or I'll respond to this. If both I've been asked to join the team and be that change agent and make those changes or whether I'm just joining a team around the same time, mm-hmm. because, you know, like I'm, there's, there's lots of roles that I play in my life vocationally as well, where I have the least accountability, you know, like I do a little bit of consulting that is so small that I wouldn't even know the hierarchy at the organization that's actually paying me because I'm just advising on a tiny thing. Right. So, right. so, so in all of these situations, I think the key thing is I have to remind myself to not act on information in the first while, <laughs> because I have a tendency to love to build momentum. It gives me confidence. Mm-hmm. And I also feel like I have to get other people to notice the momentum and the direction that it's heading. But if I just wait a little longer, I tend to make better decisions. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter whether I'm purchasing a new pair of hiking boots or if I'm trying to figure out what, you know, what the right thing to do is. I have a tendency to go, that's what I'm looking for because it matches part of what I had in my head or what I wanted to feel. But I, I haven't done enough. You know, I haven't seen enough. Right. Mm-hmm. I need to sort of slow down. So that's the first thing. The second thing to bear in mind is I'm always looking to eventually grow a heterarchy. So like I said, non-hierarchy doesn't mean complete anarchy. So where a heterarchy is going to work, and you can't just go like this and have a heterarchy on day one, but 
what you can do is you're building leaders of areas of accountability within it. So it's really good to find out where that's already happened. So where is it already happening in a healthy and purposeful way? So who are the other leaders within the group that are influential that take ownership? Because that's the thing is when you're looking to make a team great, you you don't want to run into too, too much anyways, the attitude where like if you have someone and we've all heard this before where they say something like, well, you know, we lost every game this season, but uh, I did my job. I made them bigger and they got faster. Look at the timing lights and they got stronger. Look at the, you know, look at this test I have in kilograms. I'm like, well, the test on the scoreboard sucks, right? Like what you want is you want someone saying, I take ownership over what we're trying to do here as a purpose. So you're looking for those people who take that level of ownership and then try to create a sense of mutual ownership. These are your leaders. So you need to try to find them. And then what you do with them is if they're drowning a little bit, because it's hard for them to lead in the way they want to lead, it's hard for them to be an empowering person. You've just got to remove the barriers where they're drowning a little bit because of those barriers. So remove anything that is contributing to their struggle because then essentially you're rewarding that. And a culture is going to come from what you reward and what you reprimand or eliminate or whatever. Um, So if you then start rewarding the people who are acting in uh, a sense of um, interdependence and they're nurturing others and they're good mentors and they're showing up with their decisions clearly aligning with what's best for the team, not just for themselves. Well, this is when you get a heat map of who your leaders are in the team. And then you can start to look at the barriers that you observe. And then over time, you can speak to these people and ask, ask them if they see the same barriers and would it help if, and you start to do all this. And then before you know it, you have this natural emergence of a group of, of leaders within your team, and that is your heterarchy. Now, knowing that's where I always want to go, I want to go where there isn't an organization where it's like, oh, I can't do, can't do nothing until we talk to Scotty about this. Right. There might be a couple things like that, but usually it's more like this conversation should include Scotty, not we need Scotty's permission to do anything. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it should be mostly people have the resources, which could just be the resource could be you have the agency to make this decision and do it well. Right. That, that's all it could be needed is just permission. Right. One of the things that I've, I've always found curious, you know, I kind of use the analogy. If you look at football, like you have the coach that comes in and says, you know, I want to, I want to run a West coast offense, but to run a West coast offense, you have to have a certain kind of quarterback. If you don't have that kind of quarterback, if you've got a seven step drop back quarterback, you're not going to run a West coast offense, but the force feed that offense anyways, and then they don't have success. And my viewpoint is that in your first iteration, you have to say, what, what are the people I have in my space and what can they do and how am I going to create something that 
supports them and find out whether they can step up to that or not. And then I may have a long-term view to run that West Coast offense, but I'm going to run it. I'm going to slowly bring people into the space in order to move towards that. Um, I find where you make your your failure proposition is to say, well, this is my template for success. Um, and, it, and it's kind of funny because I, in my mindset journey, one of my mindset uh, mentors used to talk about the concept of transference. And it's this idea that when you're actually um, counseling somebody, rather than saying, this is the way I do it and you should do it, <laughs> it's trying to find out who they are and what is going, what mechanisms, processes, systems, et cetera, are going to work for them. You can give them salt and pepper ideas of some of the things you do, because then they can maybe resonate in that. But rather than saying, hey, you have to do this, 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 and this, how does that resonate with you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, because first I know you and I both would have experienced times where we gave people, uh, we didn't tell people how to do it. But we had a situation where saying to them, hey, you know, like this is something that this will do this, which will make us more successful. So we've generally been doing this, but um, this is how I've been doing it. But I want you to assess the problem with a fresh set of eyes and do it your way. And then what they did is they came up with something that we now want to do. We're like, well, next time I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the way you did it because that's better. That stuff happens Mm -hmm. all the time. right? So that that alone is good enough reason to give people that. Uh, that that freedom for your own self-learning but also to your point it's like that is now an anchor because they they did a process that they now own that is the ownership that you want right Mm -hmm. so they're not they're not doing the latte the way starbucks does the latte (laughs) they're doing it the way they want to do the latte now it's their latte so they they don't work for Starbucks anymore. Now they employ a barista. They personally employ this character within themselves that makes these great lattes. So they're not at work going, I'm going to make 455 lattes today. And that's a good way to make $90. Like they're not, they're not mundane thinking that they're just like, I employ this barista as part of who I am. And they're they're essentially empowered because of it. But the other thing to remember too is like that old paraphrase, Dan Baker's used this before remarkably well to articulate the journey of a young coach. Um, and I think he uses it on our, in our Australian Strength Conditioning Association courses um, in like the level one or level two when he's talking about the pathway. And he says, look, when you're a novice, you just copy, copy other people's programs teach them with the same coaching cues, do everything the same as long as you're a novice. And when you reach an intermediate status, you need to adapt, make changes because you're experienced enough now to tweak. And then when you're an expert at the craft, well, that's when you innovate. And if you think about that and zoom way out, I mean, Dan's talking about like coaching people how to lift heavy things in that context. But if you just zoom out to all of life, what does your staff look like? Are they all novice? Well, you might have to change the way in which you lead. But if they're intermediate and expert, how are you going to keep them if you treat them like a novice? Mm. You're never going to treat them. And if they're older, they're probably worth more money. So it's very easy for you to have not enough money and you treat them like a kid 
and they just wonder what what is my why where is my purpose how do i fit in i just want scotty's job and i deserve scotty's job and i should be in scotty's job so none of that was a problem when you got there scotty <laughs> but when you got there you didn't recognize that she was underpaid and highly experienced and if you accidentally didn't didn't see that you've now made money a reason to leave by not addressing that but you've made made her engagement not high enough because you've sort of, by trying to take on too much responsibility yourself as the leader, you've taken away a responsibility or a set of accountabilities for others that actually brought them joy and satisfaction. So you're patting yourself on the back on leader eats last, I hike up the hill, like all great stuff, all great stuff, you know, speak first and last in the meeting and you know, all that kind of stuff. That's all, that's all great stuff. But also be aware of like, what are you taking on that you've just taken off of someone else who's probably better at it than you anyways. <laughs> but also, right, right. you know, that was the thing that they were really into. And by taking that away, all of a sudden it magnifies other inadequacies. I, I always say this to people who are contract and teams that I work with is like money isn't the reason to stay. I get that, but I'm, I'm going to make it no longer a reason to leave. <laughs> okay. And then after that, the reason to stay is because you love it. Like you've got to love it all the way through here and in here. You've got to love it because then, you know, you feel a part of something special. And that's, that's kind of something I think that's really important when you first come into an organization is to find those leaders and also find find the the leaders that haven't been like haven't been behaving as such. Mm. And there's often people who are you know early to mid career who have this character that is very suitable to begin to take on purposeful responsibility within the team. I'm amazed at how like say I'm thinking of one gentleman in particular how in five years who he is as a leader now and who he was like so, so, so different. And all it was, was just removing a few barriers and all of a sudden, boom, like it's just growing. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't about creating something for this, for this gentleman. It was actually like just pointing it out and saying, you can go there. That's safe. Go there. You can come back, but you can go. That's safe. Go down that alley, explore that, explore this, encouraging those exploits into areas of leadership. And all of a sudden, this person is super, super helpful, but it just didn't get noticed. So then this person looks at me like, you know, you noticed or whatever, like it's some kind of special talent. And it's like, no, dude, everyone was busy. I just wasn't busy. And I got a chance to see that, you know, you were ready for a lot more responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. well, it's funny that you mentioned Dan Baker because I had him speak a little while ago for our hockey summit and I loved one of his quotes he goes you can't polish a turd you can only roll it in glitter yeah <laughs> <laughs> so to back off of that there are times where you're going to run into somebody who who doesn't fit and you've done your best to help them grow or change but they're not doing it what what are some of your uh, litmus tests for somebody who doesn't fit in and how, how do you move towards moving them out in some mm -hmm. sense? Yeah. You know, I, I don't have, um, I don't have a, a particular method. Um, 
but I do have like a framework that I look at it. And I, I, I just kind of use the Jim Collins analogy in terms of the framework in my head. So I ask myself whether, and so the Jim Collins analogy being that, you know, business or a team is like a bus. And if you happen to be the leader of the team, you're really just a bus driver. Um, and so when you're talking about people and you're talking about this bus analogy, I ask myself, like, are they in the right seat? So is this the correct bus? First, and you know, first of all, um, and, and then it helps me understand, like, have I tried enough to change their seat, to change things? Because maybe this person's role, uh, if it's modified, will be more successful. Hmm. So before being reactive, turning responsibility on myself and asking whether I've missed something. And then I'll usually, you know, talk to others about it as well. Key people um, who would have, you know, have a strong opinion because they've earned an opinion um, on that particular person or that whatever that factor of, of the uh, of the team is. Um, and if if the person's you know position on the bus has been moved around, then I do definitely um, go back to that Collins analogy and think, well, sometimes you just got to let them on to another bus. And in some cases, I've actually told the person this explicitly and explained the whole analogy to them and said, everyone deserves to be on the right bus at the right time. But most people don't think that because they're afraid of getting off the bus. They always think it's negative, um, but it's not always negative. You know, like you're... And oftentimes, you know, because people don't want to be told that at their own, like it's not their decision, it's the decision of others that they can't be a part of this team. Even if they don't want to be a part of the team, it still doesn't feel good to be told that you can't be part of the team, right? right? Like if you told me that I couldn't go into a certain coffee shop, even if I don't want to go in that coffee shop, don't tell me I can't go in the because now I want to know why and what's wrong with you. And I get defensive. It just becomes a fight. Right. And we can either talk or we can fight as Sue McMillan would say. Right. So if we're going to, we're going to talk, what you can often do is, is explore with that person. Like, do they think they're really on the right bus? You know, like what, what are, what's going on? And what you might find is that you haven't been evaluating their performance at all for the last six months. Mm-hmm. No, what you've been evaluating, you might find out you've been evaluating how they cope with grief. Mm-hmm. You had no idea. Just because your other team members are so personal with you that they will tell you when your wife's in a bad, their wife's in a bad mood or their husband, you know, um, isn't very nice to the dog you'll have other staff members whose parents have died and they didn't even tell you. Mm. And so you're not evaluating. You've got no signal whatsoever. You have no idea who this person is. All you know is for the last six months, you've been dealing with, um, with, you know, uh, you know, grieving Greg, not not actual Greg. So you might find that out. And that, if you if that was happening, you'd want to know that before you kick them off the bus, right? Mm-hmm. It's not very compassionate if you if you don't. But you gotta you gotta have those conversations. But ultimately, most people are going to recognize that the culture is heading in one direction, and they're just not. Because even in a respectful culture, um, where people aren't like me- reprimanding each other in front of others or setting culture traps or anything like that. 
people can still tell who is moving, you know, moving things forward, climbing the right ladders with the organization based on how things are going. Right. And so they can often feel like, um, like I've had, I've had young practitioners say to me like, um, yeah, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm ready for a team like this. I just need to be in a position where I have a set of tasks that I just do and learn how to do them really well. Hmm. And, and that's, that's happened on at least three occasions for me well, where cool. it hasn't worked out. And it's because that person has said like, maybe this is a place for me in the future, but it's not right now. Like I'm not, like literally I've been told you give way too much autonomy way too soon for someone like me. Hmm. And I, I, I do, I would accept a weakness as mentoring early career people, hundred percent, my biggest weakness hmm. in, in what I do right now. I got lots of other weaknesses, but in terms of what I do right now with teams, that's my biggest weaknesses. Interesting. It's a, a, a nice insight to, know of yourself anyway so you can recognize it and mitigate it to a degree i want to finish with um actually segueing back to what we were talking about before we came on which you were talking about your son jake and how you're sort of moving from this place of maybe what i would call management to a little bit more consulting as his age is growing so you know when you look at leadership and now how you lead your son in some sense how are you kind of changing the way you operate operationalize work in you know taking these things and saying you know i i i need to let him be him but at the same time give him direction so how how do you play in in that world as a dad i got no idea man <laughs> to be honest um i do like i'm out there I make things I'm, up i like it <laughs> trenches but like i'm i'm honestly trying different stuff and i'm uh i i don't i don't i i, I think i have a few ideas and so one of the ideas I'm cognizant of now is that uh, Jake's at an age where it's there's a lot more opportunity to talk about why things are done um, with a lot more recognition uh, on his end about connecting, you know, why we're doing things with what we're doing. Right. So I'm able to have conversations with him. And I, you know, sometimes they're what you might call passive lessons. We might just be camping and we end up talking about something and it's not planned, but it's, you know, it's related to, you know, following through and having integrity or, um, you know, having good values. Uh, and I think that what, what I really started to notice was he, um, we were talking about we we're talking about uh, soccer, and we we're talking about uh, his guitar. He's really into guitar and music in general. Um, a bit of piano, drums, everything. And you never have to um, you never have to remind him to practice. I've never once said to him, "Hey, I you know, we bought you a guitar for your birthday. You better practice, right?" Like there's most of the times I stop myself from asking him to stop playing. I've never asked him to stop playing. I've asked him to go to bed, but I've never asked him to stop playing, but I've had to stop myself from asking. That's how much he practices. And uh, a couple, a uh, couple weeks back, he said, you know, my two buddies, um, his two, two close friends that he's hanging with all the time. He says, you know, they're really good at soccer. And when we play games, cause they play on the same rec team together. He says, when we play games, 
Um, in those moments, I wish that I was a better soccer player. But then I come home and I want to snowboard or go for a hike. I don't want to do my practice drills kicking the soccer ball against the plywood that you set up in the garage. I just, I don't want to do that as much. And this is, so he's eight years old. He just turned nine, but he's eight years old at the time. And he says something to the effect of clearly parroting something that I said on the telephone to an athlete or something. But he, <laughs> he says, but you can tell he understands. And he, sa- he says, I guess I just need to accept that if I want something, I have to want to achieve it, not just get the achievement. You know, I can't just have the outcome. I have to, you know, work towards it. So until I start liking the soccer practice, I can't expect to be as good as them. But maybe I can just accept that I love these things and I want to do those things. And I was thinking, geez, that's like, first of all, some of the words he used for an eight-year-old were pretty impressive to me. I was pretty stoked. Um, But also just that sense of like, he is at an age where we can talk about those kind of things. And so it feels real when I say like, I'm not raising a nine-year-old, I'm raising a, I'm raising a man, right? Like it's, it's a process and it, it takes time and together, Tracy and I, and I guess our whole community and our friends and family were we're, tr- we're trying to raise, we're trying to raise, um, you know, this, this child to be, to be a good adult as well, not just be a well-behaved child, which is doing the right thing. It's understanding why we do things and making them capable. And so for me, Scotty, what I struggle with is where is the balance? Because Tracy and I will debate and I'll say, do you want, do you want Jake to be safe because he's protected? And she'll say, yeah. And I'll say, well, but I want him to be safe because he's strong. So where is that spectrum? I think I'm paraphrasing Brene Brown, which I do a lot, but I'm pretty sure that she's talking, she's talking about not just focusing on being, you know, protecting children and protecting ourselves because when we're unprotected, where we experience these mishaps of life this is where we grow this is where we learn this is where we get better so when we're talking about children a lot of times as parents we want to completely protect them and make them safe through protection but we also need to think about making them safe through making them strong and capable Mm -hmm. and so to me that's kind of like this um spectrum in my head where should we where should we sit on this one you know what do what do i not tell them for now Right. That's a tough one for me, Scotty, because I'm a I'm a personable guy. I like to chat. I like to shoot the breeze. And so I like to talk to my son about some stuff. And sometimes I go, wait, I shouldn't. He shouldn't know this yet. And that's yeah. that's hard for me. I have to stop and go, no, that's okay. It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. I can just divert this conversation. We'll come, you know, he's gonna know this stuff later in life. But yeah, that's kind of a hard one for me is where should we sit at this point in time on the safe through protection versus, you know, building strength by basically failing. (laughs) I think that's one of the hardest um, parental um, challenges is, is letting them make their mistakes and recognizing that you have to back away, but at the same time also not wanting to have somebody get 
burned alive, so to speak, uh, by their mistakes. And, you know, that's, yeah, it's, it's a challenge. It's a challenge for all of us as moms and dads. Yeah. And we tend to be uh, mama bears tend to be mama bears and daddy bears tend to be daddy bears. So, you know, you got to have that kind of balance at times. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, dude, as usual, we could wax philosophic for a long time, but I think we we covered a, a lot of great stuff for the listener, and I uh, thank you for being a part of my day and a part of my life, sir. I'm stoked, buddy. Thanks uh, for reaching out again for this and taking the time. Yeah, I appreciate it. And I love what's been happening with the, the podcast. It's been really enjoyable. I, I really... I, I think there's some people out there I know who follow dozens of podcasts, right? Whereas I, I follow certainly well less than one dozen, um, probably, probably five or six. Um, most of them in like the land conservation space and, you know, things about animals and stuff. Um, so uh, it's, a, it's always a real highlight. You know, I always feel like we're talking a lot more than we are because I'm, I'm listening to your voice uh, <laughs> on a trail run or driving to Whistler from Pemberton. So that's yeah, awesome. I love it. I love, it. Awesome. I love to see the growth in it too. Thanks buddy. I appreciate you. And I appreciate you, you coming on two times now. So you're one of uh, an elite crew of two timers. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for joining us today on Leave Your Mark. I hope we've left a mark on you today, and we wish only that you pay it forward by sharing this story, taking the time to rate and comment on this podcast. Please follow us at Twitter at Built by Scott and Instagram at King O'Pain, and become a member of this community at Scott G. Livingston on Facebook. Have a great day. Music by Cedric de Saint-Rome. <laughs>